Good morning, church family. Wonderful to be with you. Um, we're in the book of Luke, so you take your Bible and open it up to the book of Luke. We're in chapter 19 this morning, chapter 19, the very beginning of that first 10 verses. I have this huge respect for search and rescue personnel and first responders. They risk their lives through all kinds of things like you saw on the screen, tumultuous seas and remote mountains and desert wastelands, and they, they go to where they're needed, right? They go and they risk themselves, their safety, for those that are lost, those that are in peril, those whose lives are in danger. A search and rescue team in Colorado puts it this way. Millions of people visit the mountains in Larimer County, Colorado each year. A few will become lost, stranded, or injured, and some will die. And our objective is to find and rescue these lost, injured people before it's too late. We're dedicated to saving lives. They've got this little motto, and it's this. This we do so others may live. They risk their lives. They They do all that they can so people would find safety. And I love that motto because in a spiritual sense, it's the mission and the motto of Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus recorded in John 6.40 saying, This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. I'll be the one to rescue and save each person who places their faith in me. In John 10, 9 through 10, Jesus says, And I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he'll be saved, he'll be rescued. And then I will go in and out and find pasture, uh, and he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I, I came so that people would be saved, would be rescued and have life. That's some of your story right here. Some of you have been rescued. You were lost once, and you're rescued. Some of you came in, and maybe you don't even know it, but you're seeking, and you're lost. You're floundering, spiritually speaking. The gospel accounts depict Jesus in a way that many people did not expect the Messiah to look and to act like. They describe Jesus as a search and rescue hero. Now, not the kind that you might have seen on the big screen with Marvel or DC Comics or whatever. When I use that word hero, it's kind of thrown about in our culture, isn't it? But really, truly, when you think of the activity, the character, the person of Jesus Christ, he is this towering, heroic figure. People he sought out in all walks of life, who were lost, some knew it. They, they recognized how lost they were, and some did not quite understand how lost they were. But he came to seek and to save them. They all had this one thing in common. They were lost. Just like we've all got this one thing in common. We're lost without Jesus. And Jesus seeks them out. He was going about his mission seeking and saving the lost. And he was helping his disciples get the same heartbeat for the same kinds of people, the same people that he stepped into their lives. And if you read through the Gospels, you see those kinds of people are all kinds of different people from all kinds of different cultures and walks of life, different, different backgrounds and different socioeconomic settings. And Jesus came to rescue them. 
If you went to Lake Elizabeth after church today, and you took this random poll of people asking him, hey, why do you think Jesus came to earth? Think of all the answers that you would get, all the different kinds of responses from people. Some people might say, ah, I've got no idea. And others might say, well, he came to be a good moral teacher. You've probably heard that a lot. Some people might even say he came to be a martyr. And others would say, I don't even think he came. My son Andrew was uh, asking to do a project recently in school. On, and they asked, uh, you know, you can choose whoever major historical figure you want. And he, he chose Jesus. And uh, the teacher said, well, we can't do that because we don't know that, ever, that he really historically existed. Now, I'm, I'm here to help you understand, to know this with confidence, that there's more historical evidence, even by agnostic historians, about the existence of Jesus, his historical existence, than any other person in that entire era. And that, actually, in a 500-year bandwidth, there's more evidence that Jesus existed, lived in history, So why do people respond that way? Maybe they just don't know why he came and don't understand their own condition. Luke 19 tells us why he came. And Luke has actually been building this strong case for Jesus' mission that leads up to Luke 19 in this text we're going to see in just a minute. And he culminates this passage we're going to look at with the mission. It's actually Luke's thesis statement for the book. He came to seek and save the lost. Now, look with me into the text, Luke 19, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's some provided for you right around here, or get next to somebody who's got it on their phone, whatever. And let's look at the words of God together. We're looking at the English Standard Version. That's what I'm reading. He entered, that is, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. I resonate with that. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, let me, I'm going to go on in the text here, but let me just say this clearly because there's so much confusion over this point. We, um, we're not sin- sinners because we sin, because we do certain activities. We were studying about this in my small group this week. We sin because we're sinners. That's our identity. We're, we're dead in our sins. Ephesians chapter 2 says it really strongly. We're, we're wrecked, we're dead, we're separated. We're spiritually without a pulse. So here's this crowd who is offended that Jesus is coming to Zacchaeus and having this conversation because in their minds, he's a sinner. 
And the reality is, he was. And so were they. And throughout the book of Luke, as Luke is making his case, they were struggling to understand this, to understand who they were, their identity before God. And I, I hope that you, if you have never grasped that, can grasp that this morning, who you are before the living, high, and holy God, that, that you're wrecked without him. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. For many of us, when we hear this story, when you might have heard that story, you, you get in your mind this little man who's straining you know, to see Jesus through the crowd. In fact, maybe an old, if you're a longtime churchgoer, you might know a little song about this guy. I see some head shaking. Zacchaeus was a, yeah, I know, I feel that pain. Like he's a wee little man, right? He's a little small guy. And because of that, you might have in your mind, these mental images of what's going on in the story and might not capture the whole story because we can stir up these images and miss the really important thing that the Lord is communicating to us about life, about who he is. And the story is filled with these crazy, unlikely things, isn't it? When you think about the story deeply. Think of how crazy what happens here truly is that a rich chief tax collector, a man of power and influence and wealth, would be so eager to see Jesus that he sacrifices his dignity and climbs up a tree in the middle of this crowd to just catch a glimpse of who Jesus is and to see him. That this man, probably filled with a lifetime full of guilt and regrets about the way he's treated people and the way he he got his income, extorting it from people, cheating their riches, their wealth out of them so that he could get wealthy, that he would want to get close to Jesus, this one who is rumored to be the Messiah. That uh, this Jewish rabbi facing the criticism for his acquaintances constantly would be the one to stop the train and to go up to this tree and to look at this man and actually invite himself over to his house. That Zacchaeus, this man who's greeted, apparently knowed few boundaries during his career, would not only open his home up to Jesus and welcome him joyfully, but would offer to give half of everything back. And not only that, but to go beyond that, perhaps to give up all his earthly wealth in response to what he's experiencing in Jesus. And that Jesus would call this despised man who had sold out to the Romans and in effect turned his back on his nation and his countrymen. Jesus would call him a son of Abraham, a man of faith. That's remarkable and unlikely. All these things are unlikely. And that the very mission of God's son, the Messiah, would be to go after people just like this who are stuck in their brokenness and their wreckage and their They're dead before God. They're lost. All those things are remarkable. 
But the most remarkable thing to me, the most essential point, I think, is that though Zacchaeus was the one that climbed up the tree because he wanted to see Jesus, the initiative in this story and throughout the book of Luke is always that God stepped into this man's life, that God took the initiative. He took the initiative in my life and in your life, and he took the initiative in Zacchaeus' life here, this unlikely lost person, and he calls lost people into relationship with him, with them to, to lay down the guilt and their wreckage and the shame and the death and to experience life in him. And there's so many good, powerful things about Jesus himself in this text and about who we are and what God is calling us to be. Luke's, Luke tells this story of Zacchaeus in a context he tells it, and they experience it with people who have been wrestling, wrestling with their own identity before God and wrestling with people around them. They had this assumption about who should be part of the family of God and who wasn't part of the family of God based on their exterior looks, their activities. In Luke 18, 9 through 14, we read these words from Jesus He also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now pause on that statement because it's a powerful one and it's it's something that I can slip into. I know many of us who have walked with the Lord for a season can slip into this. We can think that we're righteous because of something that we have done. And we can treat others, we'll look down our nose at others, treat them with contempt. Jesus says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee who looks like he's got everything together and the other tax collector that's on the other end of the spectrum, the most hated kind of person in their culture. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down into his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a powerful illustration that speaks to spiritual entitlement versus repentant humility. And as Jesus tells the story, I'm sure people are squirming and wrestling with it. And and some rejected what Jesus was saying. They, They would not accept that this could be reality, God's word to them. They were struggling. And Luke follows this message up with an account of an event where a rich, young, morally upstanding guy comes to Jesus and asks him what he's got to do to make sure that he's got eternal life. He comes to Jesus seeking to be assured that he's part of God's family, and Jesus calls him out, and he challenges him to put his money where his mouth is, to actually give up what was most precious to him and follow Jesus. And the man decides the price is too high. His wealth keeps him from finding Jesus And Jesus uses that moment to teach this really powerful 
essential life-giving truth that undergirds our faith. It's this powerful declaration. In fact, it moves me to worship. I hope it moves you as well. Where Jesus says this in verse 27 of Luke 18, what's impossible for mortals, impossible for us, is nevertheless possible for God. There's nothing that is impossible with God. And when I hear that statement referenced to life situations that seem especially difficult, I'm reminded that there's a context to how God made this statement. It's true. It's a reality that God can accomplish by his divine power whatever he wants to do. Nothing is impossible with him. But in the context of Luke's writing this statement about Jesus saying it, Jesus actually is referring to who can be rescued, who is the lost, that there's no person outside of the power of God's rescue. Isn't that good news? Because that's my story. That's your story. That anyone God can rescue, regardless of your past, regardless of what you've done. It gives me hope, not just for my past, it gives me hope for my present right now. Because regardless of what I've done this week, God can forgive me. God can bring healing into my life and restoration. And God is in that business of rescuing the lost. He still is in that business. So that's the context. And Jesus says when commenting about this rich young ruler's decision that, yeah, it's more difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to fit into the eye of a needle. But God can do anything. That's rich news. And as the crowd of people choose on that, and what Jesus just said about this rich young man, we get to the end of Luke 18. And before, just before we're introduced to Zacchaeus, Jesus is on the outskirts getting into Jericho that day. And he comes across a man without sight. He can't see like Zacchaeus can't see. Only this man had been born blind, apparently, and Jesus brings healing into his life. He, he gives him sight. Now notice how all the themes in Luke 18 and before are fleshed out in Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus becomes this living demonstration, one more example of the impossible possibility that Jesus embodies and loves to live out. The streets, they're filled with these pilgrims, and they're headed to Jerusalem. They're headed there for the Passover. They're headed there because in just moments, they're going to actually celebrate this great event in their life. But what they don't realize is that the Passover lamb, Jesus is actually there in their midst with them. So they're filled with anticipation and thinking about what's in front of them. And our Lord enters. And he knows what's ahead of him. He knows the triumphal procession of Palm Sunday that we're celebrating. He knows that's just ahead of him. And he also knows what happens during the week, the betrayal that will happen. And he knows that he's called by the Father to lay his life down in rescue of the lost. He would be the Passover lamb. And it was the most heroic act imaginable. And this is just before Jesus is seeing this ahead. And the crowd is swelling in Jericho as they come for the Passover. And with the multitude of people coming to and leaving Jericho, business thrives. For the Roman government, this is this ripe opportunity to tax them more. And Zacchaeus is right in the middle of that business. 
the Romans would exploit this time by placing heavy taxes on all those people who were making pilgrimage. Just one more reason the Jews hated Rome and hated all those that worked for Rome. And in this setting, we meet Zacchaeus. He, his Jewish name means righteous one. Isn't that interesting? Though there's nothing righteous about him at the point where he's up in the tree. He oversees this tax franchise bought from Rome, and it was highly profitable. And as a tax collector, Rome required you to give a certain amount, and you could tax foundational taxes and income tax and custom tax. You had a certain amount you had to give out, but then you could add your own taxes. And you could tax people for the number of wheels on their cart or the animals that they brought or the products they brought in or, or where they were going. And, and that's why tax collectors became rich. And they were hated. In fact, the rabbis taught that associating with a tax collector was to make yourself unclean. Think of how different that is than what Jesus is doing right here. If you just associate with them, you couldn't attend synagogue. You couldn't worship. If you were a good Jew, you just didn't get next to these robbers. The Jews viewed themselves, viewed tax collectors in the same light as they viewed prostitutes. In fact, the Jewish Mishnah goes so far as to say that it's permissible to lie to them to protect one's property. It's okay to actually disobey one of the Ten Commandments because these guys were such scum. Now look at Luke 19.5. crowd is swelled around Jesus. They're wondering who he is and they're observing him and they're there to celebrate, to go up to Jerusalem, to participate in the Passover And Jesus parts the sea of spectators and goes up to this sycamore tree. Not not some of them that like you have here, the northern sycamore that's really big, but it looks more like a fig tree there in the Middle East. And this, this man is up there in the tree who is wealthy, rich, and he's obviously known. He's got a reputation. And past the crowd, the tree and the branches and the leaves, Jesus looks up. And he peers into Zacchaeus' soul. And he sees him. He knows his history. He knows all the things that he's done that have been immoral, been unrighteous, that have hurt and wounded people. All his extortions. All the money he's taken legitimately and illegitimately. And moved with compassion, Jesus looks at this broken, lost man. He says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. Zacchaeus, I'm inviting myself over. Hurry and come down for I've got to, I must stay at your house today. The way the original language phrases this, Jesus is in more than a conversation, and it's more than just inviting himself over for a meal. It's actually, I'm going to stay overnight at your house. Hope that's okay. And don't you love what happens, how Jesus takes the initiative. Notice what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, Zacchaeus, what are you doing? You look like an idiot up in that tree. He doesn't say, you're a scoundrel. How, how dare you cheat people, your own people, the Jewish people of all these riches. You've stolen money, and you probably have some on you right now that you've stolen. You've got to give it all back, and you've got to clean yourself up before I spend any time with you. That's not what Jesus says. 
That's not who Jesus is. How, how amazing grace is, isn't it? Corey Tinboom, an inspiring Christian who lived through the Holocaust, once said, There is no pit so deep, the love of Christ is not deeper still. That's good. In this story, there's no tree so high, the love of Christ could not reach. And so Jesus lives out his mission. You say it right there at the end of the passage, right? He came to seek and to save the lost. Do you know the first question in the Bible? For those of you who are Bible trivia buffs, first question in the Bible? It's when God says, Adam, where are you? Genesis 3. It's not that God didn't know. God knew where he was. But he was teaching Adam about himself. He was teaching us about himself. He doesn't have the heart of a policeman looking for a criminal, but the heart of a father looking for a lost child. That's who Jesus is. God's always been a pursuer. It's not that we loved God, John writes in 1 John 1.4, but that he loved us. Jesus is this one-person search and rescue team, and he's calling out to Zacchaeus right here. And interestingly, Jesus says, I must stay. He doesn't ask permission. As if Zacchaeus ran a bed and breakfast, That Jesus was obedient to his father and to the mission. To what was planned in advance by God himself. And look at Zacchaeus' response in verse 6. He responds like you would to a friend who you've longed to see for a long time with with joy. He welcomes him in. You can see the the leaves and the twigs flying as he jumps out of the tree and, and welcomes Jesus joyfully. The coming of Jesus to his home was a sign of fellowship and ultimately of forgiveness. And Zacchaeus embraces it with everything he has. But not everyone's a happy camper, are they, in the story? In Luke 19.7, murmuring begins, and it moves through the crowd. Where is he going to stay? At the sinner's house? He's going to eat there and actually stay there? They had apparently not taken to heart the words in Luke 18 the parable that Jesus had told, or the way that he had approached all these lost people throughout the gospel. But these whispers in the crowd, they didn't seem to bother Zacchaeus. They certainly didn't bother Jesus as people were grumbling. It reminds me that nothing should stop me from intimacy with Jesus. Nothing that people say or how they treat Christ should keep me from Intimacy, like the joyful embrace of the Lord. Zacchaeus, I think, represents a chief attribute of all disciples, the desire to see and know Jesus and a corresponding joy in his presence. That's that's what marks us. We're not told the details of Zacchaeus' conversion. Isn't that interesting here in the text? But we see clear evidence of it. Zacchaeus offers to give half of everything he owns to the poor, and then with the remaining 50% of what he owns, he's going to provide restitution of 400% to anyone who he has defrauded. Now, think about that for a second. How many people is that if he's the chief tax collector? Hundreds, thousands of people. And 
Where did he get his number? I think he gets it from the Old Testament. The Old Testament taught that if you stole something from someone, you had to give that back plus 20%. And if, he, if it was a robbery, you had to pay double. Exodus 22, 1 through 7, or 200%. But Zacchaeus doubles down. He's going to give 400% of the 50% that he's got left, which probably leaves him with nothing. It's the exact opposite of the rich young ruler, what he does to embrace faith with the Lord. And he doesn't do it to earn salvation. Salvation has already visited him. He's doing it in response to God's grace. His response is in contrast with a lot of people when called to place their faith in Jesus are thinking, is that going to take a bunch of my time? How much is that actually going to really cost me? Am I going to have to start doing things differently, treating my relationships differently? How little can I obey and still be considered a Christian? (laughs) Have you heard that kind of response or felt that kind of response? How close can I walk to the edge? For Zacchaeus, this life change is radical. It's a faith marked by abandon. He's going to give up everything in the past, and he's going to follow Jesus. And this story is declaring that salvation had truly come to this house. Look what Jesus says. Since he also is a son of Abraham. Remember, Zacchaeus is an outcast. He was born a Jew, but the Jews kicked him out of their community. He couldn't worship with them. He wasn't a part of them. And Jesus is saying, he is a part of the community of faith far more than some of you. I own him. He's mine. I've adopted him. He's part of the family. I'm sure some in the crowd that day who were born Jewish and bragged that they were so righteous and close to God were really struggling with this. But Jesus takes Zacchaeus and he rescues him. And Zacchaeus responds to that rescue by giving all his faith and all that he is to the Lord. Zacchaeus is this living example. And Jesus, he seeks out and he saves this lost man. Just as he had been doing throughout his ministry, just as he has done with many of us here, he's still in this business. And we are still, like Zacchaeus, objects and exhibits of his grace. It's grace. Because again, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our sin. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love, he met us alive. You, you weren't just separated from God, you were dead. And you didn't do anything to deserve your salvation. God extended the invitation, just like to Zacchaeus. And for those of us who were once lost and now can celebrate at this table, we can take communion knowing that we're part of the family of God because of what he's done on the cross for us and rescuing us. That, that should just birth in us an awakening of gratitude and thankfulness for the grace of God. But it should also do one other thing. It should help us think about how Jesus views people. That he came to seek and save all kinds of people, regardless of our prejudices and biases against them. There are lost people 
that you will meet this week, this Passion Week, that need to hear the great news of God's rescue, that God needs to rescue through you. I want you to think about who those people might be and this week to have in the forefront of your mind, God, who is it that I'm walking right by that, that I would not have paid attention to? Who are the Zacchaeuses in my life that I didn't even want to be around, that I treat with contempt or I look down my nose with? God, those are the lost that you love, that you care for, that you died for. God, maybe I just need to invite them to Easter. Maybe I, I need to tell them the story myself. I need to point him to the Lord. And if you came lost today, I'm here to tell you with great joy, you don't have to stay lost. Because anything's possible with the Lord. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of your experience, he loves you, calls you to himself. Let me pray with you if I might, please. Father, thank you for this great encouragement of the extent of your love. I thank you for this great example of Zacchaeus, his joyful embrace of it, and just challenging for me to think about. Father, there are people in my life, there are people in our lives that are lost, that you love, that you call us to this week. Give us the boldness, the love, that you alone have that can give us to love them, to point them to rescue. And I, I pray that people would come to know you this week, that you would change our hearts and help us to seek them out, following your model. And if there are those here who came that do not know you, I pray that, that they would come to embrace you, place their faith in you, and know of your great love for them. Just, Lord, we're wrecked. We're sinners. But you save us. And for that, we can't even express how profoundly grateful we are, but we are. We love you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.